Welcome to the Jew and Gentile Podcast. I am your host, Chris Katolka, and with me is none other than the Jewish sage himself, the one, the only, Mr. Steve Herzig. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. But You're a you... mensch on a bench right I, now. I'm a mensch on a bench. I got to tell you, uh, the office here as we approach Christmas, slim pickings. Slim pickings. People are on vacation. Everybody's going on a vacation. Uh, 100%. Do we go on a vacation? I am next week. Uh, well, you... there I, you go. I can't believe it. I'm speechless. <laughs> See, you're going to come in and say, where is Chris? Oh, he's on vacation. Uh, he's you know? on vacation. That's Everybody's on vacation. 100%. Well, here we go, everybody. Hey, don't worry. We're still going to be bringing you a podcast, even though I'm on vacation. We're working it out. Don't worry. But, hey, listen, the question is, Steve, uh, is this going to be a great show? We have to turn to our magic highball. Our highball. High life. Uh, our life ball. Our life ball. Okay. That The survey says. The survey says. <laughs> Better you shouldn't ask. <laughs> I gotta tell you, that's it's spot on. Spot on. <laughs> Better you Better shouldn't you ask. You should. Is anything okay? Is anything okay? Well, listen, we've got a, a a fantastic show lined up. It's Christmas season, and so today it is our goal to blend some uh, Yiddishkeit, a lifestyle. Oh, we. Oh, that's right. We still have to think about our Yiddish word. Ay, ay, ay. We are so behind. <laughs> we don't even have a Yiddish word. I'll come up with one We're, before. You're going to come up with one on the fly. That's okay? right. That's Steve's right. good at that kind of stuff. You got the Yiddish word. It's brewing uh, up there. Uh, what a, what a, we'll figure it out. Steve just realized we didn't have a Yiddish word. That shows how much we prepare, right? <laughs> well, we were actually so excited to talk about what we're going to talk about here. We, we, we did develop uh, some great content on the Jewishness of Christmas, and I'm not even just talking about the fact that the Jewish Messiah was born in Bethlehem. I'm talking about the fact that when Christmas rolls around and that Christmas season feeling comes, and we're putting on the songs on the radio, and we're hearing certain songs, and we get that feeling that we love. I love Christmas. I love the Christmas season. Uh, those, some of those songs and the things that we do just as Christmas season rolls around, actually, you'd think it would be produced by Gentiles, but no, it's got Jewish culture customs built right into it. So, but you know, Chris, uh, last week you were talking about uh, Jewish Christmas songs and how the Jewish people impacted uh, Christmas, and so I looked it up. Yeah, I you... went and looked it up, and there are eleven iconic Christmas songs that were written by my people. <laughs> I love this. And, and, you know, I actually, Alice and I watched a documentary on PBS uh, on uh, a Jewish Christmas. Uh, and they were talking about uh, um, Jackie Mason was one of the people interviewed. Uh, he's deceased now, but lived it well into his 90s, a comedian. And they asked him, why do you think so many Jewish uh, folks wrote Christmas songs? He said, let's do the math. <laughs> he said, we're Less than 2% of Jewish people are in the world. Said Christians make up the majority. We're going to write to the 2%? <laughs> no, you got a better shot again. He said he saw where the market was. He saw where the Isn't to me that's Hey, you, let's put your finger up <laughs> to right. the wind. Which way is the wind blowing? I, let's go this way. Hanukkah so, songs are going to get us bupkis. <laughs> in fact, and one of the people interviewed in that uh, documentary <laughs> said, all these Jewish people writing hits for Christmas, what do we get? Dreidel. <laughs> dreidel, dreidel, dreidel. That's right, and We couldn't do better than that? <laughs> nope, no, that's no, it. Nope, all the songs by the Jewish people are written for the Goyim. Oh, and we're talking about iconic. I was going through this list, and Steve, one of my favorite Christmas songs that I was been a favorite of mine since I've been a kid. I didn't realize this until I looked over this list is written by a Jewish uh, um, duo. duo. Yeah, duo. Yeah. And so let's go through these, Steve, one by one, so one, that maybe people one. get a better understanding of maybe some of their favorite Christmas one songs. One of my favorite. Have you ever had chestnuts, Chris? Roasting on an open yeah, fire yeah. or in general? Have you ever eaten chestnuts? I yeah, actually, I have. Uh, I, I haven't. That. I could tell you, I, I was up in Connecticut with Alice a couple weeks ago, and we were at a store, and I, I said to Alice, there's chestnuts here. You could buy chestnuts, and they were in a can, they were in a bag, and Alice said, oh, yeah, when I was young, we roasted them in our fireplace. Oh, you're kidding. Well, I never roasted a chestnut. I don't even know... How do you eat them? Are they <laughs> how big is a chestnut? 
I don't know from chestnuts. And but you whole, sang the song. Though. I love the song because it. Did it you like these you, songs when you before you were a believer? I yes. I the. Is I didn't want to sing about Jesus. If you notice, none of these songs are about Jesus. <laughs> no, it's Jesus. true. Yeah. There's not one song about <laughs> Jesus. What are the songs about? Family atmosphere, getting together, schmoozing with well, one that's another. Why, that's why I was saying... Food, drink, that's what it's all about. Well, That's why I was saying that you don't realize it, but really the culture of Christmas that we have today in America, the, like that idyllic Christmas vibe comes from these songs. It, you're right, they're not talking about Jesus. They're not hymns. Um, they are talking about the culture that we all look forward to, that Polar Express kind of feeling, you know? Exactly. So tell us a little bit about what this article says about your song first. Yeah, okay, so I'll start with mine. Mine's number five, okay, of the list of 11. And my favorite song is uh, that I've had for since I was a kid is Silver Bells. I love the song Silver Bells. And uh, it was written by Ray Evans and Jay Livingston. It says, yet another dynamic Jewish duo. This jazzy tune was written by Ray Evans and Jay Livingston. While the song doesn't center on any religious aspect of the holiday, it does celebrate the festive winter spirit as Christmas approaches. While Livingston grew up in a Jewish family in McDonald, Pennsylvania, and Evans in Salamanca, New York. What, two two Jewish hotspots? A hundred percent. And it's, yeah, where's Salamanca? I have no idea. And McDonald. The two met and became musical partners at the University of Pennsylvania. Hey, University. I mean, if they probably rolling over there in their graves right now. Exactly. Uh, a fun, lesser known fact about this iconic song. I love this. It was almost called Tinkle Bells. Fortunately, Livingston's Jewish wife, Lynn Gordon, was aware of the double entendre of tinkle, which is what my... Let's let's not go there. I'm just saying that's what my grandmother used to say all the (laughs) time. Chris, you need to go tinkle. And persuaded her (laughs) husband to change it. And it became Silver Bells. uh, It would have never... Tinkle Bells wouldn't have gone anywhere. It, and plus that song, that's such a jazzy, you know, to call it Tinkle Bells. I, aye, 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 <laughs> anyway, aye, aye. I love that song and well, I'm happy to know two Jewish guys wrote it. Well, number one is chestnuts roasting on an open fire. I already told you, I don't know anything about chestnuts. My wife does. Mel Torme. Mel Torme. Mel amazing. Torme. Uh, he passed away on actually not that long ago. Yep. Um, a, Jew, uh, a Jewish singer. Nicknamed the Velvet uh, Fog. The Velvet Fog. Uh, He grew up on the south side of Chicago, working class Jewish family, a musical prodigy who started singing professionally at age four. Uh, And so the Christmas song, better known as Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, was popularized by Nat King Cole. And, yes. I love Nat King yep. Cole. The moment that song comes on, I go, oh, yeah. I love Nat King Cole. So what's number two? All right. Let It Snow. Lyricist, songwriter, and Sammy musician. Sammy Khan. Oh, Khan. my parents talked about Sammy Khan all the time. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Great uh, songwriter. The child of Galatian Jewish immigrants. He grew up in New York City's Lower East Side. Khan's... Uh, Kickstarted his fruitful <laughs> songwriting career by adapting a Yiddish musical theater song, Bemir Bis Dushon. Amir Bis Dushane. Wait, Amir Bis Dushane. Okay, what does that even mean? I don't even know. Okay, that, maybe that could be our Yiddish phrase of the day. That's right. I'll look it up, That's- and that will be our Yiddish phrase. <laughs> Our Yiddish phrase for the day. You look that up, all right? Find uh, out what that means. All right, I'll, I'll read do that. this. Okay. In the English for the Andrew Sisters. Later, Khan partnered with another Jewish composer in Hollywood, Julie Stein, with whom he wrote the holiday hit Let It Snow, as well as the Broadway musical High Button Shoes. This song gets a gold star because despite the general wintry cheer, it doesn't actually reference Christmas at all. Khan eventually garnered four Oscars and among his most prominent work in in the 89 songs he composed for Frank Sinatra, which he let, later earned him a spot in the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1972. Good. What's uh, number three? Right. Santa Baby. I just saw a video of an old friend of mine that I used to go to youth group with on Facebook and she was at a Mariah Carey concert. And you know what she did? She filmed Mariah Carey live singing Santa Baby. But she didn't invent the song, actually, because it comes from Joan Javits and Phil Springer, two Jewish composers, Steve. Unbelievable. That song, it's it's just, uh, 
It doesn't even seem appropriate for Christmas. No, that's true. <laughs> it's, it's So let's move on. Yeah, 100%. Uh, it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's, now that's a great one. Yep. That one was written by two by George Weil and Eddie Pola, uh, another Jewish duo um, that wrote uh, the most they wonderful time. They wrote Gilligan's Island. The song <laughs> to Gilligan's Island. The two, I mean, how do you do that? You go, uh, you know what? Here's a hit show. Boom. Done. Here's a hit Christmas song. Boom. Done. Gets it done, you know? Uh, it says that uh, they had Hungarian Jewish parents who grew up in New York City. The two collaborated on the song in 1963. And who made it a hit? Andy Williams. Classic. Oh, the classic. Classic. Okay, so we did talk about White Christmas. Yes, yes we last did. week we, we mentioned that Irving Berlin um, wrote that. But, Steve, well, let's park here for a moment, number 10, because there's actually a story about this that you noticed and picked up, and we have the article here. Because Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, um, rocking around the Christmas tree, and A Holly Jolly Christmas and Silver and Gold were all written by Johnny Marks, it says. Johnny Marks uh, grew up in New Rochelle, New York. And he w- when he wrote this song, he actually was writing a little bit of his own history. Uh, Chris, you know the song, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer had a very shiny nose. Yes. Well, uh, according to, I, I never actually saw uh, Johnny Marks, but evidently he had a big schnoz, uh, big nose. And Chris, I, I have a, I have a big nose. Uh, Italians do. Uh, on the Everyone Loves Raymond, he has a, a, he has a concern all the time when he proposes to his wife and she says yes. He still doesn't believe her that she wants to marry him, and so he turns his head like this so she gets a profile. And so he said, "Will you marry me?" Now, <laughs> so a big nose is is it could be rough, and that's why you have nose jobs by uh, uh, doctors who make their fortune uh, doing them. Uh, so Johnny Marks had issues, and this song Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer had a very shiny nose. It stood out. It wasn't like the other reindeers, just like Johnny Marks. People, kids, made fun of him. Mm-hmm. They made fun of his nose, and they wouldn't play with him. He wouldn't play any games with him. Because his schnoz was too large. Because he was Jewish. Yep. And because he looked different. And Chris, who are the worst people? If you're different, if you're not part of the crowd, who are the people who are the most merciless in killing you if you're if you have something that doesn't quite fit in? All with the popular people, all the sports players. Who, who, what group are they of? Kids, oh, children, kids, 100%. children are killers. Yep. I mean, adults could be bad, but kids w- watch them on a playground. If somebody has a physical trait, they are they have no filter. They make fun. It happens all the time, and so this affected him. But he turned it around and made it very positive for him as he makes a song where Rudolph ends up being very important because it's uh, foggy outside and they needed a. A very bright nose. <laughs> so, but that's interesting because, like you said, he highlights that concept of persecution, being persecuted for being Jewish, and how uh, uh, being persecuted for having uh, a large nose, as he would say. Uh, and so, it, again, he picks up on those themes of persecution, Jewish persecution. And what happens? He writes Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer that becomes iconic in Christmas culture for us. Chris, there are stigmas given, and some of them you can make fun of. Look. Our dear listener, I love it. Our dear listener gave us, and we talked about this last week. Uh, I'm not yelling, I'm Jewish. Chris, one of the characteristics of our people is we're loud. We're it's 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 not something that we work on. It comes naturally. <laughs> Big noses, features, all these kinds of features that you know what? We should celebrate them, but in our culture. People rip you and they classify you. And uh, look, you and I are vertically challenged people. I'm vertically challenged. You always put yourself in there, but I think you compare yourself to like LeBron James or something like that. (laughs) Chris, the average male in the United States is 5'10". Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. I am way under average. I'm under two, but but that's the way life is. But 
if you're so if, I just have to say though, because a couple of months ago when the book came out, when the Israel Always book came out, we had a Which you wrote. Which I wrote. Yeah. I mean you gotta tell yeah, a couple of when <laughs> when the book came out. What book? Oh uh, Israel only. Oh, well who wrote it? Yeah. Oh, I did. That's right. <laughs> the, the book it was a um a launch party. That's right. That and your wife had for you. 100%. Chris Katolka wrote the book. And they had a launch party. Set the stage. This is me telling you. I, I never do this right. I know. Exactly. So th- thank you very much. I appreciate you setting the stage. And so we're at this launch party. And my two neighbors are the exact same height as me. And we're all short guys. Okay. So all three of us, me, Jim, my neighbor, and Sean across the street, we're all chatting. And we're all 5'4". Five, 5'4". Four, five, four. I'm just going to say we're 5'4". And here comes Steve walking over to us short guys. And he says, ah, my people. And we're all looking up at him going, my people, what are you talking about? Come down a few inches, buddy. What's the air like up there? And so, <laughs> no one, but he's going, he's going, look at my people. I'm thinking, oh my goodness gracious. You give us a few inches. We'd love Chris. That. When I got married, uh, we had a very small wedding in my wife's home. Her father's six feet tall. Her brother-in-law was 6'3". Her her other brother-in-law was 6'4". And her brother is 6'6". And they want to take a picture of the men. Picture this. (laughs) So it's it's these giants. And there's me. (laughs) All five, seven and a half of me. That's fantastic. Right there. It it does make a difference. (laughs) Well, and the thing that really stinks is that my grandfather on my dad's side was six foot. He was six foot. I got. He stole bupkis. all the DNA. All the, that Come DNA. On. That DNA. Well, anyway, it's interesting. I wanted to look this up, Chris, because last week uh, we talked. You talked about the Jewish impact that uh, Christmas has had. And the most important, of course, is Jesus, Jesus. is Jewish. Oh my goodness! Which people don't know. People, I know. Isn't that funny? People don't even know, and that's why, Chris. I think it's important. This podcast is sponsored by Equip. And I last like, you're and good. last week, Chris, you your topic was Bethlehem. And I was at that uh Equip course. We had about 150 people on. Mm-hmm. And that that's significant. You your point was this was the city of David. Yeah. This is where David was anointed. David would be this person who uh who would be the king, and he was born. In Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. It, it marks Jesus. You know, I the art, the thing I try to say in that, in, in the teaching last night that we did on Bethlehem, was a lot of times people hear, um, sadly, from the pulpit or from others, hey, you know what? Uh, Bethlehem was an insignificant town. It just marks Jesus' humble birth, that he would be born in such an insignificant town in an insignificant place with among insignificant people. Very humble, humble, humble. And, you know, you miss the point of what's going on is that Micah says Jesus would be born. The prophet says he'd be born in Bethlehem. And it's no accident that he would be born in Bethlehem because that's where King David, Israel's greatest king, comes from. So Jesus is just picking up right where King David left off, but the ultimate king, the one that the promise—God made that promise to David. Hey, David, your descendants— through your family line, the Davidic line, there will be a ruler who will rule over my kingdom forever. And I believe God was thinking about Jesus. So, of course, it is fitting that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. That's right. And Equip, which sponsors the Jew and the Gentile podcast, uh, is the course that you you had one of your courses, uh, which is on Bethlehem. And how could people access that course and other courses as well. Well, we're going to be putting that course up soon, but um, they can go to our YouTube page by just going to FOI Equip, search yep, FOI Equip, and there you can watch um, all of our classes that are online uh, on YouTube. But I would also like to just simply say that when you're um, that when you're online and you're looking at all those classes, hey, do me a favor while you're there. Subscribe. We have almost, Steve, a thousand subscribers. So we're just a handful away. I want to see. Yeah, they subscribe, but they never show up. (laughs) That's right. Only seven show up. Well, they're waiting for the video. That's the thing. (laughs) So click that subscribe button and be sure to subscribe to not only the podcast, because the podcast we air on YouTube as well. So be sure to do all those things and uh, it'll be great. So go to foiequip.org because, Steve, we've got some great classes coming up in the, in the uh, upcoming year of 2024. 2024 is going to be a great year for us uh, to uh, have equipped. But we have a guest coming in. Yeah, what's in. going on? 
Oh, there's going to be a fire alarm. Oh. We'll work through it. We'll work through the fire alarm. Thank you Wait, so much, Laura. Laura, there we live and in color. That's right, exactly. <laughs> There's no hiding what's going on here. We did not plan so, that. So, folks, when you hear the buzzer, uh, we'll pause and leave and come back. That's exactly right. Okay, okay. sounds good. Appreciate it. All that's, right, Laura. That's thank Laura, you, Laura, our assistant. A very able assistant who just said there's never a good time to do the podcast. Exactly right. All right. Well, listen, let's turn to the scripture, Steve, because let's do it. We're looking at Daniel and uh, we're in Daniel chapter nine. And last week we looked at Daniel's prayer and it was a prayer of repentance. And, you know, Steve, it's so funny. I know that this was written for the Jewish people um, Daniel's prayer, but I'll tell you, you know, you can so easily, which I think is good, put yourself in that prayer of repentance because in God's eyes, sin is sin. Um, whether you're a nation sinning against God or you're an individual that's sinning against God, it's all a sin. And there's that feeling of repentance that we should have a brokenness in understanding what we've done wrong. Because as David said in Psalm 51, um, you know, David says, I sinned against you and you alone. And so, you know, of course, David sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, but in the end, he goes, in doing those things by harming the, those two, I ultimately harmed our relationship as well. And so, uh, you know, you, you can put yourself in these prayers and say, Lord, hear my prayer and petition of your servant and asking for favor and asking for forgiveness. And I just love Daniel's brokenness here. No, I agree with you, Chris, but the context here, we have friends of Israel, when we read the text, we understand that it was written at a particular time to a particular people or or person, depending on the context here. So we have Daniel. We've already talked about Daniel, and we're in chapter 9, and we already know that he was uh, with, in the lion's den. His three friends were in a furnace. He was taken away captive. All that context has to do with Babylon, Israel, and then the individual Jewish captives, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. Right? That's, yep, what, that's, that's exactly the context. Right. I was taking us out of context. No, you were taking us us with application, which is application is this, these passages, this book is just as important to us as Christians Mm -hmm. as it is to the Jewish people at the time he wrote it and today. Mm -hmm. That's what's interesting to, to me. But so we had the prayer. We talked about that last week. We talked about repentance. And now we're coming to a very controversial uh, portion of, of scripture. Uh, it's interpreted so many different ways. Yep. And when we come back next week, we're, we're going to talk about the actual mathematics of it and all the implications there. You're talking but, about Daniel's 70th week. The 70th week. When he weeks. starts dropping numbers. I, and I graduated in the top 10% of the lower <laughs> third of my class. Math. <laughs> but how'd you do in math? <laughs> my geometry teacher, I still remember, <laughs> took me out in the hall. In the hall. I love this story. She took me out in the hall. She put her arm on my shoulder. And she said, Steve, no one works harder than you do. Uh, you come in for extra help. You're, you're, you're a student <laughs> who I know works hard. She said, I'm going to give you a D. Just to get you out of here. And never take another math class as long as you live. <laughs> Should we trust what you're saying to us No, then? no. When we talk about the 70 weeks and the 173,000 plus days, we're going to rely on you and other scholars. Aye, 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 Mainly, aye. I told n- you, you need to do the math. Our, so. our number one scholar will be Rennie Showers. In 100%. his book, he goes in great detail about that. But what is the purpose of the 70 weeks? That's the key question, Chris. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it says in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people. Now, Steve, my text doesn't say 70 weeks. It says <coughs> 70 sevens. That's right. I was going to ask, are they particular weeks? What are these? Weeks, days, months, years? That's what we'll talk about next time. Mm-hmm. We're going to get into that because it's extremely important. And you have to do math. If they're days, how many are they? If they're weeks, where does it lead to? If they're years, where's that lead to? And and there's a lot of impl- implications. But before we do that, mm-hmm. what are they for and who are they to? Chris, it says to Daniel, your people. Who are Daniel's people, Chris? Jewish people. This is the Jewish people and your holy city or your holy place. Where's that? Jerusalem. Okay, so... 
Is the church here? Is are, is are there Jews and Gentiles worshiping the Messiah during the time of Daniel? No. Okay. So this is given to Israel, and it's specific to a geographic location that is Jerusalem. And so Daniel is in Babylon receiving he, this information about an anticipation. I mean, because we were saying earlier that all, all all of this is predicated what what God is going to reveal to Daniel is predicated on his repentance. That's right. He had just prayed. This is an answer to his prayer. That's that, right. That's so significant. By the way, is that applicable? 100%. Can, can we come to God in genuine humility and repentance and expect to get up from that prayer knowing that God has heard us and he's going to take care of the situation? I don't think Daniel knew how the situation would be taken care of. Do you, think, it, do you think Daniel heard this and said, oh, yeah, I got to do all this math now to find out? I don't think so. I don't think so. But I I, I do know that the, the purpose of the 70 weeks after he prayed, there are six things, Chris, and these things can be measured without math. They can be measured. Mm. Number one, to finish the transgression. Do we know what transgressions are? That's what he just asked. Yeah, they're sins, and that's exactly what... Daniel was just missing, praying about missing the mark, not fo- not being obedient, not following what God said, which goes all the way back to the Torah. Yeah, and so, tr- transgression is specifically uh, the sin of rebellion, rebellion against God. Okay, so the purpose of the seventy sevens, whether they're weeks, days, months, years, whatever they are, the purpose is to finish and kaput the transgressions. Number one, number two, make an end of sin. Mm-hmm. Make an en- s- individual sins no more. Unbelievable. The, these seven when these seventy sevens are over, there will be no more transgression, and there will be no more sin. Then to make reconciliation for iniquity, to be reconciled after all the uh, surus sins that we there's going to be reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Number four, to bring in, and I cannot fathom, I, I, this is really deep stuff, everlasting, how long does that last? Forever. Righteousness. Mm-hmm. How, long have, has, how long have you been righteous? Give me your longest span. Give me- On my own merit, yeah. zero. Okay, zero. Uh, in Christ, how long have you been righteous? S- since I put my faith in the Lord Jesus and in he- and dwelt me with his holy with the Holy Spirit, which 100% means it's, righteous. so it's not you, it's him. So we we this is when these seventy sevens are done, there will be everlasting, never ending righteousness for everybody, everywhere. Mm. Unbe- that's unbelievable to seal up the vision and the prophecy. Now, what's that mean, Chris? Well, there was already anticipation, a prophetic understanding of what would be coming in the future. So the idea of sealing it up seems to be that he's sealing the truth of what will be taking place in the future. Because I do think that happens at the end of Daniel, which is where he says, seal these things up. But then ultimately in the book of Revelation, you're blessed if you read and listen and hear. And the seals are open. And the seals are open. That's right. And So, okay. And then to anoint the most holy to anoint that remember the oil you yeah. gave us the example of the oil where the the priest uh david was anointed with oil this is to anoint the most holy i that's going to take place i think when the holy one comes to the holy city that's right and that's uh, mine even says to anoint the most holy place to be anointing the specific location we were talking about the fact that it's for the people the jewish people and this the the sanctuary the temple um the holy place to be uh, to be inaugurated to god to be considered holy toward god so so, so chris while so many people and we at friends of israel if if uh, people want to access our magazine uh, Israel My Glory magazine, we encourage them to get the digital copy of it, because if you do, it goes back all the way to 1980. And if you get that digital copies uh, or access to Israel My Glory, you could you could actually put in there uh, uh, the rapture, the 70 weeks, all, all that kind of prophetic 
truth, and we spend a lot of time talking about it. That's right. So numbers of articles about it. So I'm not, I think that's great. But before you could even talk about the eschatological uh, highway that uh, we espouse. To, to make that word easy, prophecy highway. That prophecy yes. highway. That's right. Uh, you have to first look at what's going to be accomplished. Mm-hmm. What's, what's the main point of the main point? And the main point is, because of these things, which we'll talk about next week and how they're played out, Chris, we're going to be will be a future yeah. kingdom, a perfect place yes, with the perfect ruler. Chris, the... And the reorientation of, if you notice, there's Daniel in Babylon, which if you read any newspaper in Daniel's day, Babylon, or actually, no, he's not in... He's no, in, he's, now Babylon, there's a governor. Now they're bupkis now. That's, that's, that's right. It's just a little state now. That's right, exactly. Well, Persia. So even Daniel sees the transition from one position of power to another position, but Jerusalem, that's a backwater nothingness. And yet here, Daniel is receiving a vision that Jerusalem is going to remain the hub, will become the hub of God's righteous rule around the world. That's And so that, you have to think about Daniel's position. There he is. He knows who's in power right now. Cyrus knows he's in power. Cyrus the Great. I think this is Darius in in um in chapter nine when he talks about yeah this is Darius son of Xer- of Xerxes is in power. But still Daniel understands who's the one in power. But that doesn't phase Daniel. Daniel receives the vision that Jer- it reorients Jerusalem back to the actual place where God's everlasting righteousness would come from. And Chris, we know from Ezekiel that Ezekiel chapter five and verse five says Israel Jerusalem is the center of the earth. Mm-hmm. And he's D- Daniel's already lived through two powers. We, li- we, You and I were born in a country that is the superpower of all the nations in the world. The superpower. Mm-hmm. What does it mean in the program of God? Bupkis. 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 And that's hard for... for I, we're at the center. The, the dollar economically is the center right now, militarily. Uh, right now, we have the United States telling Israel, who's fighting for their existence, telling them that, uh, oh, I think I think I hear... It's not that bad, though. No, it's good. We can still talk. The fire alarm's going off. There is no fire, though. <laughs> or we hope. I, I think we better go out. All right. Well, listen, I just want to say really quick, um, you, you think we should pause it here? Oh, I think I don't think we have to go out. I think it's they're just testing the oh, alarms. Oh, okay. No, yeah. it's not bad at all. All right, then we'll we'll, we'll keep continue. going. That's we'll right. Continue. Sorry, y'all. We didn't plan for this. Like we don't plan for most things. But the the um, up oh, here we go. Oh, yeah. Good. Okay. Oh, good. good. We're, we were told Laura we could stay. Laura just reported we could stay. Thanks. So bear with us. All right. So we're we're talking again about this idea of a shifting the focus back to Jerusalem, and you're talking about the United States being a superpower. And you know what? It brought to mind something that struck me a couple of years ago when I was going through the Gospels again, is that you would think Jesus would blame Rome uh, for all these horrible things. Uh, you know, that's what the Jewish, the Jewish people were frustrated with Rome. You know, Rome was the problem, pro- uh, problem. Rome was the problem. Rome is the problem. And you know what? Jesus comes on the scene as the Messiah doesn't say anything about Rome. He says one that the, the uh, religious leaders trap Jesus and say, should we pay taxes to Rome? And Jesus just gives them some great insight and says, render the things to Caesars that are Caesars and the things to God that are God's. And that was amazing. Uh, it was an amazing response because technically right there was that moment where Jesus could have either said, I'm a, I'm a, a assimilationist. I'm, I, we can just live under Rome, you know, uh, and that would have angered a lot of Jewish people. Or he could have said, nope, let's not pay taxes anymore. And now what? He's got an army that's ready to fight against Rome. But he says, render the things of the Caesars to Caesars, to gods, to gods. But the point is this, is the problem, like you said, Persia and Babylon and even our country, to God, bupkis. It's bupkis. It doesn't, I mean, of course, it's all a part of his plan, but the real focus is Jerusalem. And that's the thing that I think is Jesus is showing by not highlighting Rome at all. He's actually telling the Jewish people, ah, see, you think the problem's Rome, but it's not really Rome. It's you. 
You're the problem. That's it's, always a hard pill to swallow. It, for anybody. It doesn't have to just be Jewish. Of course. And so the, the thing is, is, so when you read the Sermon on the Mount, what's the Sermon on the Mount about? It's not about, you, you can do all these laws, they're great, but what's the issue? You have an uncircumcised heart. It's an internal issue. And that's why you need right, the righteousness that only Jesus could give. But he never brought up Rome. He brought up, and that was always the thing. Go back to Deuteronomy. Your problem, Israel, is not the nation's. You're in those nations because you turned away from me. That's why Jesus is working to get them back into this right relationship with God. Reconciliation, which is mentioned here, the the end of transgressions, all of those things. Who is it focused on? It's not focused on Persia. It's not focused on Rome. It's focused on them. Then God brings the blessing. And and Chris, as uh, next time we get together, we're going to talk about the nitty gritty of the 70 weeks. But I, I, I'm so glad we're spending and camping uh, at this part, these six things, because that's the purpose. And ultimately, when the 77s come, actually, when the 69th uh, seven is finished, that's at a victory time, and it's at the most important time in Earth's history. Right. In Earth's history. That's right. So what happens? That's when Jesus comes on a donkey as the king, mm-hmm. the promised king, the son of David. And yet, remember, this is the 69th week. There's a 70th week. So wait a minute. Here he comes. He's here. And what do my people do? Exactly what I did so many times before I was 22 years old. Feh. Yeah. Feh. Who needs him? That's right. Well, I think we'll continue our discussion on Daniel uh, next, next week yep. when we can, we got to get our math ready. We got to get our uh, calculators I got, out. I, I got to ca- need a calculator because right. I got to listen to my math teacher. Never take another <laughs> math course as long as you live. Well, we've got some interesting news for you. Steve sends along this fantastic um, video from Douglas Murray that I'm going to play for you. If I can uh, bring it up here and make sure I have it on our. Oh, here we go. Um, so Douglas Murray has this. Um, uh, video that he put out about Israel. And I and want Chris, you- he doesn't hold back. I, I want you to play this because what impressed me is I don't see him looking at any notes or anything. He's been talking about this a long time and he does not hold back. A hundred percent. Here he goes. Israel is the only country in the world never allowed to win a war. <laughs> That's why, by the way, you have the situation in the Gaza. You have all the international idiots telling the Israelis, <laughs> They have to withdraw. And then what happens? You give the Palestinians a statelet and they, they give you Hamas and war. Uh, anyone who thinks the West Bank is going to be a Palestinian state is now living with the fairies. And it's not because of the Israelis. It's because the Palestinian Authority hasn't wished to create a state for decades. It never did. It's only ever been interested in creating a state from the river to the sea, as they always say. It's never been interested in a two-state solution. Palestinian Authority, under two leaders now, has repeatedly turned down every Israeli offer uh, of, of peace. They were offered 99% of what they wanted just 15 years ago. They turned it down again, as Yasser Arafat did at Oslo. They don't want a two-state solution. They want a one-state solution, and that's a Jewish-cleared Palestinian state. That is Boy, that's I mean, amazing. You can't get any more clear than that. Last week, I had mentioned um, when we were... Uh, um, I've got to get my screen back there. Last week, I, I was we were talking about uh, the fact that this phrase appears that I hear a lot. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. I've heard this when they're talking about Hamas. That, and what they do is try to cast moral equivalency between what the IDF is doing to what Hamas is doing. See, they're morally a, a equivalent. A, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. But a, as Douglas Murray so eloquently put in his British accent, is that, look, Israel has offered them freedom and independence over and over and over again. And what happens? They turn it down because that's, they don't really want an independent state. They want the Jewish people out of Israel. They want to eliminate Israel. And But here's the thing. A lot of attention has been given to Hamas. But see, he directed it even toward the Palestinian Authority, where I know a lot of people don't want to point blame at them because they are what you would consider the more moderate groups of the Palestinian leadership um, but it's funny. He blames the Palestinian Authority. It's also Hamas. But he, he's saying it's a unified issue. These people don't really want peace, he's saying. There's no question. You remember last week when Vered was on, we had her as our guest. It When war happens, 
It's amazing how things change. And she's on the bus with a coworker, a Palestinian coworker, mm-hmm. a bus driver, a bus driver who, who says, "Get off my bus." Yeah, the war started, and now you're an Israeli. I'm a Palestinian. He's actually an Arab Israeli. He lives in Israel, uh, but he says, uh, "Get off my bus." Yep, and that's I mean that's tough. And so he uh, again, I think Douglas. I'm glad that you shared this, Steve, because Douglas Murray, I think. <laughs> shares the reality. Um, And, you know, it's funny, especially when you hear the Biden administration talking about Israel right now, it's constantly forcing Israel back into a two-state solution. The two-state solution is so important. It's the two-state solution that's going to win the day. It's the two-state solution. And everything is forced through that grid of a two-state solution. It's forced through the Oslo Peace Accord grid that happened decades ago. And uh, I saw a video of... uh, um, Zippy Hotavelli, who I, I forget what her position is, but she was on the news. She's a former, I think, a, a former member of Knesset. I have to double check. But she knows the political world of Israel, and she was uh, being interviewed by a British um, journalist. And he kept saying, you know, uh, talking about the Oslo, uh, Oslo, going back to Oslo. And she finally looked at him and said, don't you see Oslo didn't work? It didn't work. Why do you keep one of force forcing the Israelis and the Palestinians into a system that clearly doesn't work? A two, she's arguing a two-state solution is not hasn't worked and it won't work. And so stop telling us what to do when that thing you want us to do doesn't work. It keeps producing terrorism over and over again. And you know, Chris, as you and I are here in our podcast room in the United States, and we're we're commenting on what's going on in Israel. <clears throat> uh, the next news item is significant, because, and, and it segues really well. You know, when I first started uh, to do tours, I remember uh, all every time you go to Israel and you're taking a tour, something's going on in Israel, and people have opinions. Americans have opinions. Give back the land. Don't give back the land. Bomb them. Don't bomb them. It's very easy for us to be critical, to give suggestions, but we're here in America with no, no, nothing going on. Nothing. Chris, uh, we have colleagues, uh, people who are listening might be very familiar. I hope they are with Zvi Kalisher, who's with the Lord. He went there in 2014. His son is a prominent uh, pastor in Jerusalem, and uh, and Menno has been on radio. You've interviewed him on radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, he writes for Israel My Glory, and he pastors the church. Well, as a he's also a father, Chris. Uh, and while we talk about what Israel must do uh, during this time, oh, they must, they must defend, they must go in. Well, who's that? Do- in in Menno's case. Two of them happen to be two of his four kids. One of one of them, Danny, has five children of his own, leaving his wife. And in Gaza, the other is his daughter, who is, last I heard, in northern part of Israel, with, I think, three kids of her own. Mm. And so the cost of this war is not just economic. The when When we give advice, we're saying, we're, whatever we're saying, Israel should be able to make its own decisions, and we should support the decisions they make. They're an independent country. Their lives are on the line, and we know it well because our own colleagues. We have a an, another colleague, uh, Adi, whose son is somewhere in Gaza in a very sensitive military position. He hasn't heard from him almost the whole time since October 7th. Chris, these are serious things, and uh, the article comes from where? Why don't you tell them where you got the article so they could read about it? Uh, yeah, this is coming from uh, All Israel News. It's Messianic Jewish Congregation support evacuated families and soldiers during Israel's Iron Swords War. And so, of course, that's Pastor Menno Kalsher, as Steve was mentioning, and the amazing things that they're doing to provide medicine, food, clothing to Israelis that have been evacuated from the south. Um, to their own congregation, of course, and also to the military who are serving. They, I think, provided 120 coveralls uh, because it's cold. They call them onesies. Onesies, that's right, exactly, up in the north. Um, And so, again, the Jerusalem House of Redemption does amazing work, 
And uh, we wanted to feature our brother, Ameno. That's a high cost, Chris. You have four children of your own. I have four children of mine. And the idea of sending them off to war, uh, the implication of that is very, very serious. And so we at Friends of Israel support Israel. God loves us unconditionally. We love Israel unconditionally because God loves Israel. That's right. And so uh, as they are willing to pay the ultimate price, we should come alongside. Does that mean we agree with everything Israel no, does? Everybody's no. Don't, does that mean you just blindly? Fo- no, no, that's not. No, we're not no. following. We're not worshiping Israel. We worship the God of Israel. A hundred percent. But it does. It's just like if if our soldiers in America go off to war, I, I it doesn't matter who the president is. Republican, Democrat, Congress, we support the country. Does our country perfect? No, but we're Americans. <coughs> oh, Chris, the, having COVID will kill you. No, you had and, COVID. In a lot of ways. I had yeah. it a long time That's ago, right. but I'm still coughing. Don't worry, he didn't bring it in here. Okay? No, I didn't bring it in. It's, it's past three weeks. Well, here's but, the thing. Uh, there's another one that I think is fascinating, because if you uh, uh, have been watching the news, you saw that uh, there was a congressional um, the, uh, uh, panel of having uh, a th- three presidents, four, four oh, presidents. Yeah, I, did, I never. Who was the fourth one? So there's MIT, Harvard, Harvard, and UPenn, UPenn, and then I don't. I was forget. it Colgate? No, no, no. It wasn't Colgate. Um, I don't know who it was. I always thought there were three. No, there were four, and I'm trying to remember. I told you I didn't do well in math. <laughs> I got three. I got three. You got four. I believe. you. Well, write in. Let us know uh, who it is. We'll look it up, too. But we do know that the Harvard president, what well, we know, UPenn's president, McGill, resigned. she resigned. resigned. She yep. got out. Um, but then the Harvard. What a parachute, by the way. She's still a tenured law professor oh, at UPenn. Yep. McGillis. So she walked out of the service of being the president. Yeah, that's right. And now she's so she just stays in her position. As a tenured law professor. Okay, well, I'll take it. Yep. I'll take it. Yep. Um, the other is, uh, but during this during this panel, uh, um, uh, who was, I'm trying to remember the congresswoman from New York who was questioning oh, them. Uh, begins with an S. Sel. Uh, 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 you and I are off today. We are off. <laughs> We're off. But um, I, it'll come to my mind. But um, she was questioning them, and that is when... They, she said, does it break the policies of your universities to call for the genocide of the Jewish people, your bullying and harassment policies? And they all said, in the right context. And that just, oh, uh, man, yeah, it was horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the Harvard um, president, she's not going anywhere. Uh, nope. they're, they're letting her stay. In fact, like 700 professors at Harvard said, let's keep her. Yeah. Let's Ex- keep her. Yes, and those uh, there's also a lot of professors that said we don't want an anti-Semitism inquiry that happened. You know, they don't want to do an audit on anti-Semitism. It's very backwards. All that to say, Harvard, um, the president did go of Harvard to light a menorah, uh, but this is what happened afterwards. Harvard forces Jewish student groups to hide menorah at night for fear of vandalism. Uh, a rabbi uh, has um, uh, was there, and it says Harvard forces a student group to hide its menorah each night after its lighting over fears of vandalism that won't look good for the Ivy League school, the rabbi of Harvard Chabad said. He said, quote, on our campus in the shadow of the Widener Library, we are in the Jewish community. Uh, we in the Jewish community uh, uh, are instructed. We'll let you uh, we'll we'll let you have a menorah. You made your point, okay? Pack it up. Don't leave it out overnight because there'll be criminal activity, we fear, and it won't look good. Rabbi Hershey Zakari said at the Hanukkah lighting Wednesday night. Uh, Zakari is the founder and president of the Harvard Chabad. Um, And so he goes on and is explaining, hey, look, uh, they're trying to whitewash the situation. Look, we can all light our menorahs. There's the president lighting the menorah. And then what happens? Nope. Pack it up because we're scared that these pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas protesters are going to come and vandalize your beautiful menorah. It's it's like telling the Jewish people, hey, do me a favor. You probably shouldn't wear a kippah, okay? So hide that so that you don't get hurt. That's do, the idea. Do you remember Kamala Harris's husband, what he said Hanukkah is about? <laughs> They're hiding in a cave. They, they must have read him. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Take Let's go and follow the version, his version of Hanukkah. Take our menorah in a cave, hide it. 
so that nobody knows. Get out of he here. He was wrong, and they're wrong. Get it out of here. We don't want to. We don't. What country are we in, Chris? That at at a university, a university's atmosphere is the exchange of ideas, the reasonable uh, articulation of different positions to uh, be able to have freedom to talk about. What it, whatever it is you're going to talk about, and what are they saying on the campus at Harvard? Go, just don't let anybody know. Uh, hide it away. We don't want any trouble. It's great. I mean, it's the world that we're living in right now. But you know what's so funny is they would never do that to other groups. That's the thing. We've only heard for so many years about um, can professors. You ta- can you imagine taking a, a flag, a uh, rainbow flag? Oh, yeah. Put it in a cave. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hide it away. Hide it away. You can't say, I mean, if you mispronounce somebody, if you misgender them, you can get fired from these, you know, but here, a Jewish person, we want to kill you, kill, you know, death to the Jews. And what? Uh, just the right context. Here's the congresswoman. Uh, it's Elise Stefanik. Stefanik. Elise Stefanik. She's a very conservative. Um, oh, those questions were great. Yep, and I think she's Jewish herself. Is she Jewish? I'm not sure. Oh, I have to double-check that. I thought she was. Um, but anyway, uh, she has uh, been a, a proponent of supporting Israel and the Jewish people, and uh, we'll have to find out what that fourth school is. MIT, Harvard, uh, University UPenn, of Penn, and, and I have no ay, idea. Ay, 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 ay. I can't remember. All right, so anyway, Steve, uh, let's move to our, our Yiddish word of the day. I, 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 got no, wait, I got something, too. You ready? Here we go. Hang on. Let's see if... Let's see if we can make this work, okay? Here we go. Yeah, come on. Hey. It's not working, huh? I've known oh. some. There we Until go. Until I first met you, I was lonesome. This is the song. I'm here, Mr. Shane. It's a great song. I, I heard it growing up, but I never asked what it meant. <laughs> now you know. Do you know what it means? Yep. To me, you're beautiful. To me, you are beautiful. To me, you're beautiful. So say the Yiddish word again. Okay. It's it's Amir Bistushain. Amir Bistushain. Um, listen. Please let me explain. Amir <laughs> means you're grand. It means you're grand. Amir <laughs> You know, to me, you are beautiful. Doesn't that put a smile on your face? It does. It's just a happy song. You know what came to my mind? Now, this is a stretch, okay? But in that time of Daniel. (laughs) I'm I'm already laughing. All right, so in that time of Daniel, Jerusalem was nothing. It was nothing. It meant nothing. It was, you know, everybody's attention was somewhere else. But for Daniel and for God, this is what matters the most. To me, you are beautiful Jerusalem. Amir Bistushane, Jerusalem. <laughs> anyway, that's what we've got for you, everybody. Thank you so much for being a part of the Jew and Gentile podcast. Merry, Merry Christmas. So next time you're listening on the radio and you hear songs like Let It Snow, it's the most wonderful time of the year, Silver Bells, White Christmas, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire. Hey, guess what? Think about your Jewish friends. Think about uh, the Jewish people who actually helped to influence our Christmas culture that we have today. Merry Christmas, Chris. Merry Christmas. But let's focus our attention on the ultimate Jewish influence, and that's Jesus who came as God in flesh to deliver us from our sins. We are the so way, thankful. The truth and the life. Amen. Hey, everybody. We'll see you next week.